Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I am excited because it's Thursday and it's Guide Talk and the power panel is assembling as we speak. We've got Pastor uh, Tom Parrish, Dr. Peter Kapsner, Pastor Tom Brock, and I believe 007 will be joining us at his leisure. Leisure indeed. At his leisure. Leisure that's what he indeed. does. Gentlemen, welcome. Good to be with you, Thanks, Bill. Bill. Hi, Bill. Yeah, so let me invite all of you listening to send questions of any kind. If you've always wanted to ask your pastor a specific question, but maybe you didn't know if it was something you had the guts to do, you can send that question to these guys because they'll take anything. 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. If you like email instead, you can email me, bill at myfaithradio.com. And before we get the thing started today, we've got this really wonderful promotion going on. We're going to be blessing moms and mentors. It's a giveaway. So we want to invite you, the listeners, to bless the women in your life with this Mother's Day, with this Faith Radio Blessing Moms and Mentors giveaway. So you can nominate her at MyFaithRadio.com and she could win a very special Mother's Day gift set. So you can head over for all kinds of very interesting, cool promotions at MyFaithRadio.com. All right, gentlemen, let's get started. Uh, I've got some questions. Let's see. One is already in. Um, in Romans 6, 1 to 4, um, Paul s- says where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Knowing that we don't actually stop sinning once we receive Christ, what do you think Paul means when he says, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Well, that's where the battle is for all of us. The battle is between our old nature and our new opportunities in Jesus, which gives us the power. The problem is, too often we find ourselves getting drugged down when we shouldn't be. But the thing that's interesting, Bill, that goes along with that, it's kind of like what I just read about happened during the Cold War. As the government became more oppressive to Christians and the church was shut down, the more Christianity grew. And it seems to be that way historically. So there's something about the Lord in his mercy that no matter how much sin there is, his grace abounds and he's there holding out his hand continually. The question is, will we take hold of that hand and repent? Great point. Shall I read this passage? Yes, yeah, that would like be great. That? Yes. Sure. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? That's kind of the verse, I think, that we're focusing on. So really, the, I think, the, Yeah, go ahead, Tom Brock. Well, I, I think his question was, because we still sin after conversion, what does Paul mean when he says we're dead to sin? And I think what we want to say is, even though I daily sin in thought, word, and deed, there's a difference between sinning and fighting it and getting back up when you fall 
and living in impenitent sin. And the verse that I quote a lot is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Don't be deceived. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, greedy, etc. will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed. And I think that verse teaches, yes, you can stumble and, and commit one of those sins, but if you're a believer, you repent and you get back yeah. with the Lord. But if you're living in it, I'm, I think you can have premarital sex, repent, and be forgiven. But if you're living with your girl, girlfriend, you're living with your boyfriend, that's the kind of impenitence that shows you're not saved. Yeah, it's much better to talk about being a repentant sinner. You know, we're all sinners, but when we come to know Christ, now we're repentant sinners because the gap between when I do something wrong and when I come to the Lord in repentance is getting shorter because I recognize it right away and I feel like an idiot. Yeah, I think you guys have hit on some key points there, especially the idea that uh, among the different things that salvation does in our lives, it, it, to, to be saved or to have salvation is to be rescued from something. And, and what it means is that we are rescued from the power of sin and death from having its final say in our life. Yes. We are not rescued in this life from the power of sin and death, not having an influence still, right? And so that that influence is only going to be wiped away when the great reconciliation happens, when earth and heaven become one and Jesus wipes away all the tears and is the light of the city and all of that. So what we're talking about here is not the doing away of the power of sin and death in our life in its entirety. We're talking about that there's a new power at work in our life in the midst of the power of sin and death that still works within us in these perishable bodies. Because if that wasn't true, Paul goes on later to say, we need to be raised imperishable from these perishable bodies. If, if the fullness of sin and death had been conquered in this world in terms of our experience of it, then we would need to be raised imperishable. So he's just talking about there's actually two powers at work in our life. But for the first time, now, as a result of what Jesus did on the cross, there is a power that is bigger than the power of sin and death. So it doesn't mean we're going to stop struggling with sin. It just means that we have access to a redemptive resource that is going to allow us to overcome that sin at the end of the day. Whereas in the Old Testament, in, in Romans 5, prior to this passage, is all about what was the role of the law. And, they, and, and the law just taught them about their trespasses. It didn't right. have the grace involved that could pull them out of the trespasses. So there's a lot going on in this passage, for sure, with all of that. But I think the primary point that we can make is, of course, we're still going to struggle with sin. It just means that there's a different power at work for those who have given their lives to Jesus. Preach yeah. it. I mean, yeah. <laughs> here, here's, here's a guy who walks down the street. He slips in a, and he falls in a mud puddle. He gets up, brushes himself off, keeps walking. He slips in another mud puddle. He gets up, brushes himself. I, I think that's a Christian. But here comes a second person down the road. He slips and he falls into a mud puddle. He pitches his tent in the mud puddle, and he lives the rest of his life in the mud puddle. Yeah. I think Paul is saying in, in various places, he says it about three or four times, don't be deceived, that person is not saved. Yeah, I, I think, too, with what you're just saying there, too, uh, Tom, is that there, there's a pretty interesting thing about a picture of God that we need to attend to here, where it says, how does God treat us as believers in our sin? And the idea that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. I think the primary posture that we need to understand of who the God of heaven is that would will that none would perish is that he moves towards us in our sin and that his grace will abound in the midst of our sin as he continues to call us to hope. Now, if we decide to resist that and if we decide mm -hmm. to stiffen our neck and harden our heart, Paul goes on to say, so what shall we say then? Should we keep on sinning so that grace may increase? Well, we'll let that never be. That would be a stupid way to live in terms of just uh, in embracing our sin so that we can somehow say we're going to get more grace. But at the flip side, for believers that are struggling with the power of sin, 
that's a real power. It's the real deal. And and I think to to be able to understand that our Heavenly Father is so for us in the midst of our muck in life, that he comes towards us in grace with his redemptive resources and the power of the Spirit. If we live in fear of God, we're never going to be able to escape that. We need to live, of course, we need to live in fear of God if we harden our heart. But I'm talking about for the soft-hearted people that are struggling with the reality of sin, that God moves towards that in grace. That is his primary posture that Paul is explaining there. You must have got a good night's sleep last night. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that and the Captain Crunch really energized me yeah. this morning. So, yeah, it was, it was a good morning. <laughs> yeah, you actually thought Captain Crunch was an actual military hero, didn't you? <laughs> I did. I had yeah. to Wikipedia it. That's as I was, so yeah, yeah, no, it was. It was so I was a little sad. confused, yeah, this morning yeah. for sure. Well, uh, 007 has joined us. He has. Hey. Yeah. Oh, finally, he's decided to, to deign, you know, and, and be well, a part of us, of right? Good to so, be here. <laughs> it's always a little surprising when he's willing to join the, yes. the meek like us. So, so 007, yeah. welcome. Oh, hey, well, it's great to be welcome. Thank you for still welcoming me back and not, not kicking me off the show after missing so many weeks. I've missed you guys. Yeah, we've missed, we've you. missed you too. Yeah, Justin Jepson has just joined us. Do you have a comment you'd like to add to the discussion at this point? Yeah, as I'm just kind of catching up, I kind of came right in the middle of it. So I didn't hear the listener's original question. Well, but I'm not I think, tell you that. Um, <laughs> that. That's okay. But I, but I think that, you know, a couple of different things that, that came to my mind. I just think of Jesus' words when he says, all those who who sin are enslaved to sin. And I think that idea of salvation releases us from the power where we can actually choose not to sin. I think that's what Peter's talking about, of laying a hold and cooperating and battling with God's grace to live in victory over sin. But I think that's the, um, you know, I think that a key nuance, when we think of, you know, repentance, uh, that initial repentance of faith, but as that ongoing repentance as the means of sanctification, that I think sometimes Christians can think that I need to turn from my sin so that I can turn to Jesus. And then, you know, I've got to deal with my sin so that I can be with Jesus. But I think the key nuance here is that repentance is turning to Jesus so that sin can be dealt with. So in other words, we don't, we don't view Jesus on the other side of our big stinking pile of sin and say, okay, I've got to get to Jesus, I've got to get through this. He's standing right there with us with his arm around our shoulder and say, hey, we're working through this together. I've began a good work in you. And I'm faithful to see it through to completion, no matter how hard or how much of a failure you feel like right now. Um, that that grace will will win out and win over and overcome sin. You know, I really like that. Let me add one more thought, Bill, if I may. Think about human nature. When somebody hurts you, somebody calls you a name, somebody does that to you, do you go toward them or do you back away? Most of us back away. Oh, I offer nothing but grace and compassion. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Lord. (laughs) Let's try it on Peter. Let's start calling him names. (laughs) Yeah, don't call him out the fraud here. The truth of it is, Jesus is very black and white on sin and not sin. However, he draws towards sinners. He draws toward those that are brokenhearted, those that are in trouble, because he knows he's the only answer. And that's the amazing part that I find, that no matter how caught up people are in sin, there is always redemption if people will let Jesus touch them. And he's already there. He just wants them to acknowledge him. So in Hebrews, it talks about we're being sanctified even though we are perfected forever by Christ's one act of obedience at the cross. So um, as believers, we can't become more righteous, but we can become more holy. Is that right? I mean, we have the righteousness of Christ. That's perfection, isn't it? We do. We can't improve our righteousness, can we? We can just work on our holiness. Yeah, I think if righteousness is understood as right standing between God and and other men, like I think that's the understanding of righteousness is that things have been restored and reconciled into the relationship as it's meant to be, right? Right. And in the midst of that, then 
uh, we still deal with sin, and so we can move in the process of sanctification. It would be my best understanding, but maybe you guys have a better way to articulate that. Well, I like that. I saw a video the other day of a little girl who got her Christmas present. She was adopted, or she wasn't adopted. She was uh, in a foster family, and the parents for Christmas gave her adoption papers. And she was just, there were tears, and she was thrilled and whatever. That's exactly what Jesus does for us. You know, we still get caught up in sin. We still make mistakes, but we now have a new identity. He has given us literally his name, and we are part of his family. And because we have that now, we have a whole new way of looking at life. And uh, I know how important that is with our three sons. We always said to them, remember, you know, who you are, and remember how important it is to behave in a certain way to reflect Jesus. You know, I, I, yeah. took my, I, I took my youth to a Bible camp years ago, and it was a holiness Bible camp. And the man that run it, ran it, he told me he hadn't sinned for three years. And he was so insistent that sanctification is part of the Christian life. You can live without sin in this world. And he depressed me to the hilt. Mm. And I, I, I think I quoted to him, 1 John 1, 7, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. Yeah. And, and then he could have quoted 1 John chapter 3, whoever knows him does not sin. <laughs> and I think in this whole conversation, we've got to maintain two things. We're still sinners till the day we die. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. But 1 John chapter 3, whoever knows him does not continue to sin. doesn't mean you never sin, but you don't live in it again. So I think anybody that sins, if there's a sorrow and a repentance, you know, Peter, you have to forgive this guy 70 times 7. I think God does more than that for us. But on the other hand, if there's a living in impenitent sin, I, I think Paul would say, and, and uh, I think First John 3 would say, uh, if there's no repentance, then there's been no salvation. All right. May, yeah, I, I, think, think, may, may I not cut you off, Justin? I don't want to do that. Please. I want to return to no, your comment. We're way past break time. All right, that's so when we come back, the floor goes to Justin Jepson, also known as 007. If you're listening to Guy Talk, let me know what your questions are. 877-933-2484 or bill at myfaithradio.com. We'd love to hear your questions. We're going to do our very best to tackle them. Again, 877-93-FAITH. talk and we're glad to be here to serve you let me know what your questions are 877-933-2484 and i'm going to go back to justin jepson who uh was starting to speak when we went to break and i wanted to make sure you get your comment in if you remember it <laughs> yeah Bill, that was a little bit too long of a break i think <laughs> but i uh no i just just a couple of thoughts i think if i can stitch them back together you know you're talking about that dis- distinguishing between righteousness and, and holiness and mm-hmm. you know peter brought up that idea that you know there's a distinction between our position positionally we are righteous before god but what we also are we're called to practically live that out and you know and we were 
of, you know, Romans 6, right? We shouldn't continue on sin so that grace may abound, by no means. He goes on to say that we've been dead to sin, so we no longer present our members of our body, not as slaves to sin, um, but as instruments of righteousness. So in other words, we're called to work out what God has already worked. Like our justification and our sanctification. Hmm. Is those two and to notice the right order that like we can't be sanctified if we're not first justified. So justified essentially gives us a brand new root system that we're, we're born again. Um, and then that gives us the ability then to grow and to actually produce the fruit of that right standing with God, which works itself out in sanctification. So in my spiritual formation class with students, you know, it's titled spiritual formation, but I say, you know, in order to be spiritually formed, you must first be spiritually born. And once you're born again, then you need to grow again. And that process is called our sanctification or our spiritual formation. And so I think it's, it's sometimes, you know, um, and what's interesting about that, later on, Paul then talks about Romans eight twenty nine for all, the, all those whom he foreknew, he also called. All those he called, he also justified. And then he said, all those who justified, he also glorified. He totally doesn't mention sanctification because I think he, in his mind, he's recognizing if God's justified somebody, they will one day be glorified. Nicely, nicely done, Justin. Are you driving in your Aston Martin right now? <laughs> oh, well, I uh, I am driving, but it's definitely not an Aston Martin. So, yeah. I, I got to keep more of a low profile. I understand. People will pick me out. I understand. Yep. I understand. Yep. My next question comes from my so. wingman, Terry. He talks about our worship of God. Christian worship expresses our love, reverence, and gratitude towards God. But isn't our praise to the Lord not so much for his benefit? He can survive just fine without it. But isn't it mainly for our well-being and spiritual growth? The closer we get to God through our adoration, the more Christ-like we become? That's a question mark, not a statement. I think we can bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. I think God can be blessed by our praise. That doesn't mean he needs it to survive. You know, the cattle on a thousand hills are mine. If I needed something, I would not tell you. That's from the Psalms. And uh, what is it, Acts chapter, early in Acts, it says that uh, not as if God needed anything. So he doesn't need our praise, but I think he's still blessed by it. I think the question is, um, is it really designed for us to get closer to him? Is our praise, worship, and adoration really designed to benefit us the most? And I would think the answer would be yes. Of course it is. speaking. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, both are involved. But the Lord doesn't need us. He's chosen to be with us. There's a big difference. We need to be with Jesus. We need to give praise and thanks. Because if we don't do that, then out of our nature will come cursing and putting others down. And so the worship for me is so incredibly important in terms of getting my mind set on the Lord and then in turn with my fellow worshipers, that, that I really care about these people who are there praising the Lord with me, and we're a family. Yeah, nicely done, all of you. All right, um, in, the Bible says in Romans twelve ten, or seem to be in Romans today, and elsewhere, to submit to one another. Can you guys describe what, it, what that looks like among Christians? To submit to one another. Can your guys describe what that actually looks like among Christians. Mm-hmm. Who wants to go first? Tom Parrish, why don't you step up? I will. Um, what we're talking about here is submission to one another means I'm going to give you time. I'm going to pay attention to you. I'm going to look you in the eye. 
I'm going to take you seriously. I'm going to uh, help you wherever I can. It's all those like one another passages in the New Testament. This is how you live it out. Because when we submit, it means that your agenda is more important than my agenda. And too often, even as Christians, we don't do that very well. But when I finally say, hey, Bill, or Peter, or, or Justin, or Tom, what your needs are, I'm going to pay attention to, and I'm going to be there, and I'm going to give up what I want to do to be with you because I care about you. So submission in that sense is really where we should be and what we should be doing. Yeah, I think love from the scriptures in my best understanding, or at least part of the definition of love, would be that you would have a tenderhearted affection for another person, that from that tenderheartedness you would desire their wholeness or their well-being even if it might cost you in order for their well-being or wholeness to be at play. So I think we can get a little confused with submission, meaning that I am just going to allow for your opinions or I, I'm going to allow for your way of life. Like if, if your opinions, way of life, thoughts, and, and language is inconsistent with the kingdom, submission does not mean that then you just sit back and let those things persist. Submission in the kingdom is simply I'm more concerned about your well-being than I am for my own. And, and within the Christian community, what the, the thing that sets it apart from the communities of this world so often is that my well-being in theory is in your hands and your well-being in theory is in my hands. Now, I don't know too many Christian relationships that I've been in where that has been the fabric of the relationship. I know a few. I have a few trusted friends for whom I'm willing to yield my well-being to them and, and they to me in terms of lifting each other up. This is what it means to submit to one another in so many different ways. But I think we've all been so wounded in, in a lot of different ways we don't trust easily, understandably so, that we sort of have to look out for ourselves. And so we submit to our own selves ahead of other people for some of those reasons. Interestingly, I've been working with the church in India, and I, I talk to them every day or through uh, you know the Internet. It's rather interesting. But the interesting thing about that church is that they all live in the same village, they're all very close to one another. When they're hungry, they're all hungry. When they're in trouble, they're all in trouble. And they are there for one another. Yep. Where we, when you think about church, oh, we have church at 1030 on Sunday morning, and we have it Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. That's hugely different than what those people are facing. And like you, I agree with you, Peter. It's very hard to have those kind of in-depth relationships when we're not around each other very much. And that's what we need to be, and that's the way the New Testament was designed. Yeah, for sure. If you, if you just read Acts 2.42 to 45, you get a little picture of, of lived-out submission of one another, about how they treated one another in those places. But we live, I think, unknowingly so often in conditional relationships, meaning I will be friends with you because we share an affinity, or I will be friends with you because we share a vocation, right. or I will be friends with you because we share an interest. But we so easily and readily walk from relationships that to live in the kind of community that we're invited to as we've been baptized into one body, right. uh, we, we think these relationships are functionally optional and we kind of dive in and out of them as opposed to we are the people of God together. What does it mean to live life together? All right, we'll take a little break. When we come back, I hope there's lots more questions from you. Let me know what they are, 877-933-2484. The Power Panel is here ready to take your questions. Pastors Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, Peter Kapsner, and Justin Jepson is the Power Team. And I say that, and I mean it. Be right back.
It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time, let's get it started. Jump in your car, what's for dinner? It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. We're back with Guide Talk. The Power Panel is here ready to take your questions. 877-933-2484. We've got a couple of Toms, a Peter, and a Justin all ready to take your calls. <laughs> um, I'm just kind of the moderator here, so don't ask me any sp- specific <laughs> questions. All right, here's a question. What does it mean to know and love God? Kind of a simple question. What does it mean to know and love God? Yeah, I think real simply. I mean, um, I mean, I think part of part of those two those two things. I think they really kind of go hand in hand. Love God to know God, but I think when Scripture talks about knowing, um, it's it's not a it's not a knowing in just purely in a, in a cognitive sense or something by the means of just giving intellectual assent to maybe some a set of propositional truths. It includes that, but it's a knowing of that idea of, of actually having a personal relational mm-hmm. knowledge of. And, you know, in the same way, I can know a lot about somebody, um, but I, I really can't love them if I don't truly know who they are. If I, I've spent time with them, I've listened to them, I've been in some type of, there's some, some level of type of commitment of a relationship. And so I think when, when Jesus gives you know that that clarion call, that invitation of follow me. You know he 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 could have given them a textbook about him. You know he could have given them a here's a course. Uh, go talk to this rabbi. He'll tell you all about me. You know he said follow me. He was welcoming them into a life giving, transformational relationship with himself that really is an, is starts then and, and it continues to grow for the rest of our lives and really all of eternity. I think the answer is in John seventeen three, where Jesus says, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus, the Christ whom you have sent. It's interesting because I had a grandmother who was a wonderful Christian lady and read her Bible every day, and when I'd stay with her, she died when I was 11, my last grandmother. We would always read the scriptures. But she was so looking forward to heaven, and you know, the streets paved with gold, and all the glorious buildings and that. And even as a kid, I thought, is that really what it's all about? But then when I finally stumbled across John 17, 3, as I studied, I began to realize it doesn't matter what the pavement is in heaven. It doesn't matter how big the buildings are. What's important is that I have this living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, and he satisfies all my needs. There's nothing I need to look for beyond being with him. And that kind of description, Tom, I think is getting at what the knowing really is about. And Justin, you hit on it too, is that if you look at some of the old school translations of scripture, when they talk about the relationship between spouses in the Old Testament, for example, between Abraham and Sarah, it will say something like, and Abraham knew Sarah or Adam knew Eve and they conceived. And and that spoke of this one flesh intimacy of knowledge that isn't, as you said, Justin, it isn't reduced down to propositional statements or theological truths. Right. There, There is an intimate knowing so much so that the primary picture or metaphor of God and his people is what? It's bridegroom and bride. And and Song of Solomon is this racy, intimate, beautiful, pursuing book that is between two people, but it's also pointing at the relationship of God and his people. And so I think that idea of to know and love God is not to jeepers. I really love the theological inquiry and I love God as a result of it. Now, I, you know me, I'm a theologian. I love, I love theology, but right. our growing in love of God is 
along the lines of the psalmist saying, oh, taste and see. But to, to taste of something is to really know it in its intimacy, in its relationality, not in its theology. And, and God, one of the crazy claims of our faith, unlike any other faith, is that God is knowable in those ways. Now, he's unsearchable and inexhaustible, right. but God makes himself available. And, and in that knowing, as you get to know the inexhaustibility of God, you begin to just grow in love because of this familiar intimacy that you develop. And I think that, okay. that that can so help remedy sometimes when we feel so hollowed out in our faith is that invitation that God in, invites us into. You know, I think I asked years ago my staff, what would you say to this question? Do you love God? And I think one person maybe said, well, oh, yes, I love God with all my heart. I'm thinking, you do? And, I mean, if somebody asked me, Tom, do you love God? I'd have to say, yeah, but <laughs> I've still got such a battle with sin and doubt, and I love God, but I sure don't love him the way I should. And I don't think I will until I see him face-to-face and mm-hmm. I'm in you know, totally recreated, but... Tom, let me add something to that, because you and I work together. Here's the Mm -hmm. difference. Yeah, we all fall short, but you had a passion for Jesus. And I think that's the key to this whole thing. We can have theological understanding forever. We can know every book of the Bible. And I met a pastor once who had memorized the entire New Testament in Greek, which was amazing Mm -hmm. to me. But the, the question is not how much do you know, it's how much passion do you have for Jesus, and are you willing to pursue him over everything else in your life? And I've seen that in you, Tom, so, I mean, it's there. Mm-hmm. It is there. Thank I, you. I, yeah, it really is. Are you feeling insecure today, Tom Brock? <laughs> well, I mean, I just, yeah, I love God, but it's not something I can brag about, you know what I mean? Um, it's mixed with other stuff. <laughs> I heard a pastor at one point and talking about some of these differences too is he was using the example of going to Hawaii and he said, I can sit back and read the book about Hawaii and and see pictures of the beaches in Hawaii. But he said, once I actually landed in Hawaii and once I began to experience the realities and the richness of Hawaii is when he grew in his love for Hawaii, right? So Mm -hmm. we have to be careful not to just say everything is a God experience and all of that. But I think we have to be equally careful not to hollow out the possibility of relationship with God uh, at the risk of just knowing things about God instead. I think that can empty us out. So let me throw this out there. When you have a a deep sense of gratitude towards something that no human gave you, like watching a beautiful sunset or you gaze upon a mountain range, does it, do you feel inclined to worship and if you do feel inclined to worship, where did, where did that desire come from? Mm-hmm. I mean, I would say this, Bill. I, one of the barometers I have for my faith is that if I don't feel inclined to worship in response to that, then I wonder what's amiss in my spirit. That's a, a, great, and, that's a great answer. And yeah. so, yeah, I think that the, both the origin and the reality of that it just all comes from God. Yeah. Yeah, I, I absolutely do, Bill. I love that um, that idea, and I, and I think we, I think God actually sovereignly gives us those moments for us to take personally, and and even actually, um, even just real briefly, experienced this recently. Just just a week ago, I, I was out on a little on a little walk, and just feeling dry, kind of feeling discouraged, just wanting to connect with the Lord, and I was sitting uh, kind of by a, a lake, and I noticed this small, tiny little. Um, you know, sprout of some type of plant, you know, poking through the kind of the surrounding dead, you know, dead gray, brown, uh, you know, uh, 
you know, leaves and everything in the forest. And here's like this, this beautiful sign of life, this little, you know, bright sprig of whatever it was. I don't know what it was. And I had this thought. I said, you know what? This is minuscule, tiny little thing. And no one else in the world right now sees this but me. Mm. And no one else in the world even knows this exists except but God sees it. He knows and sees everything. And I had this moment of like, no one else right now is looking at the same thing except me and God. And it just was such a simple but yet little profound thing of like, I here I am sharing this moment of being in awe of something God made. And it did. It, it led me to worship. And I had this just sweet, intimate moment with, with my creator. No, it doesn't happen like, Paul, like, like Peter said. Absolutely. When that, when that doesn't happen, something's definitely amiss in my spirit. But when it does happen, um, whether it's that or I've had moments in the boundary water seeing the northern lights by myself, and I wanted to go wake everybody up and, and <laughs> the, the Lord— and they weren't. They were just snoring in their tents. And I'm like, I was trying to get, I wanted to share it. But then it was like, the Lord said, just whispered to my spirit, like, Justin, this is for us right now. And it just broke me down. And I just, I'll never forget. I'll never forget moments like that. So I think absolutely those moments we should take personally as they lead us to worship. And as we said earlier, those are pathways for us to grow in intimacy with God. You know, I'd like that all the time. I don't have it all the time. But when I do, you know what scripture keeps coming back to me every time I have a moment like you talked about, Peter? It's from Philippians 4. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. For me, that is when I have that moment when suddenly it's it's me and the Lord, and I realize I'm seeing something that's astounding. Yep. And I tell you, when, when you look at the Grand Canyon or you look at Glacier National Park, or, you got to sing, How Great Thou Art. I mean, you just got to start singing. <laughs> so the, you do you that go. often, Tom. I do, whether they want to hear me or not. Yeah. Tom, you don't have to see the, the Grand Canyon to start breaking into song. <laughs> <laughs> I've got past good. shows. I can boot them up and oh, yeah. prove that. All right, here's can I, a... Can I, oh, yeah, no, go, go, ahead. Go, go ahead. No, no, I, I wasn't going to make a joke. That's okay. Next. Okay, all right. How would you define the gospel, or explain the main reason Jesus came? 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, there you go, Peter. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't, don't set me up with that. Yeah, ahead, I think Peter. you should explain that one. That sounds great. Well, you want me? I'm not going to explain it. <laughs> First I mean, I can, but well, I What's the reference point, Brock, on 1 Corinthians 15? 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, I want to remind you, Corinthians, the gospel by which you are saved. Namely, of first importance are these things. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised from the dead. Mm. And to me, that is the meat, the crux of of the Christian faith. The gospel, the good news is Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. That's it. And that's the earliest creed ever ever written down. Yeah, I I think... That word salvation that we can reference that we went back to before just plays perfectly into that passage to to experience salvation in within the original language in which it was written is to be rescued from something and to be restored towards something. And so uh, salvation is that we've been rescued for something so that we can be restored to something. And that passage, when Jesus went at, to the cross and he descended into those waters of death, but broke open the gates of hell, thus defeating death, what he did in those moments is he says, now tether yourself to me because I have conquered sin and death in its entirely, entirety. If you tether yourself to me, my, the power that I had that conquered sin and death is now available in your life. You have been saved or rescued 
from the power of sin and death as having the final say in this life and in the life to come. You have a different power at work available to you, and it will restore you in this life, but it also will restore you in fullness in the life to come. And so I think that would be my understanding of the gospel is the good news. We are no longer subject without hope to sin and death. There is a different life at work in us. And the Lord has come looking for us when we were not looking for him. Totally. That's the amazing part. Tom Brock and I are the only two that remember this daytime, this program from years ago called The Millionaire. Remember that, Tom? John Bearsford Tipton. This isn't who wants to be a millionaire. No, this no, is... this is, this is a, it was a, it was a half an hour program. And so what he'd do is he'd send out his emissary, Michael Anthony, who would surprise people with a check for a million dollars. And they didn't earn it. They didn't look for it. He just suddenly shows up. Here's a million dollars. Then you see how their life plays out. That program has stuck with me all these years because it's the closest example we humans have to what Jesus has done for us. Because here he is, the, the trillionaire of the universe, who came looking for us and gave us, me, you, his riches, his grace. And what he asked for is that we love him yeah. and that we in turn love one another. It's an astounding, astounding, astounding. story. However, the yeah. difference, Tom, is when Tipton would give the guy a million dollars, it normally messed him up. Well, thank you. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate that. I'd still be willing to take the chance on a million dollars. So, yeah. If anyone would like to mess me up, it's yeah. ARN away. <laughs> All right, let me take a little break. We'll come back. I got lots of questions. I'm glad we're going to do the extended version of Guy Talk today. We're going to run an extra 30 minutes today, and the questions are flying in, so this is great. If you've got a question, 877-933-2484. Be right back. talk is happening we've got lots of great questions coming in and we've got uh time for your question 877-933-2484 here's a question that came in gentlemen where'd it go let's see um hmm. isn't that funny i just had it and then it just disappeared I'm doing more of that the older i get well no i mean i've got a lot <laughs> of questions coming in i'm just trying to sort through them here let's see here we go uh, what should Christians do in resisting temptation and sin? What is our role? What is God's role? Also, is there a level of success in this struggle we can realistically be content with? Is there an acceptable balance of perspective? Peter Capture, you go first. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm back in the third grade. Oh, boy. I, I mean, I guess to the latter part of the question, maybe not speaking to the temptation and what role God has in what we do, but to the latter part, I think some of the perspective that can be helpful 
is if God is going to have grace towards us, as we talked about earlier, to to recognize that sin really just is that powerful. I think we sometimes underestimate how powerful the forces are that are arrayed against us and, and the sin power that is described in Scripture. If it wasn't so powerful, we wouldn't have needed God himself to come down and die, right? So I think if we have some perspective, the perspective is is that we have grace for ourselves in the midst of the struggle, recognizing that this is difficult. But I don't think that means that we should ever settle. Like if the idea is, is that my perspective is, well, you know, I got maybe in between halfway between first base and second base on this thing to, to settle for something. No, freedom is always possible. And what I would say, Bill, is I found in my own struggles through sin that sometimes have taken years before freedom has been found. I almost find that God was seeking the undivided heart that would happen as a result of the process of surrender and change and trust and all of what you learn in that process of the struggle with sin. So I don't think you ever give up in the struggle um, and, and have the perspective that this is far enough. I think freedom is always the goal, but the perspective comes and said, but God is for you and, and grace meets you in these places and, and keep pressing on. It's the language of Paul, right? He says, not that I've attained all these things, but I press on. And I think you just need to keep pressing on as grace covers you in the process. I uh, got my undergraduate degree at the University of Toledo in education. And I remember one psychology class that would drive everybody crazy. And this psychologist or the, the guy who ran it was kind of ornery. And so the very first class, he would say to everybody, I'm not going to tell you the goal of this class. I'm not going to tell you what you need to read. I'm not going to tell you anything, but I'll flunk you all if you don't get an A on the final exam. Mm. And everybody, you know, everybody's groaning and carrying on. The, the, now, it was a psychological thing he was doing, but the point was this. Jesus has already defined the rules. He's already told us what's right and wrong. He has also given us through his word the tools to enable to, to do that. And I grew up with a home builder, and I'll tell you, you need more than a hammer to build a house. And my dad had every tool you needed. Well, Jesus already has every tool we need. What we need to do is take advantage of those tools. And where I'm, if, if the listener who's written this in wants to feel, is there a, a median ground? The median ground is is really in when I am striving to do what Jesus has given me and what opportunities I have and to put that to work. And then I can feel somewhat content that I'm moving in the right direction. Mm-hmm. The verse yeah, part of the conversation. Well, go ahead, Tom. No, no, you go ahead, Gresson. <laughs> no, I was going to say, I think this, I think somewhat ties back to our conversation about, uh, to, about knowing and loving God, you know, and I think that, you know, we can have the perspective of how far away can I stay from sin and how much can I conquer sin? And I think that, you know, that's a good question, but I think the, I think the, the focus more ought to, more ought to be, you know, how close can I get to Jesus? And, you know, in the same way, like in my marriage with my wife, like I, if I just kind of get this place, well, I've, I've known all I know about her and I've spent all the time I can, and I can just kind of check in every now and then, like, I'm not going to, my marriage will deteriorate. I'm not going to have a very good relationship, but if my, my focus is that to have an ongoing wonder and a fascination and a desire to, to grow closer to wife, um, that, that's something that's going to help uh, sustain an enduring faithfulness and a love and a unity um, and so I think part of the, you know, the, on one hand, we can be content with, I love the Lord, He loves me, but yet at the same time, and, and, and that love will, will compel me to pursue Jesus over sin. But at the same time, I, I will also say, you know what, but there's still so much more. And so it's, it's more of having that excitement and that anticipation, that expectancy, that there's actually the best is still yet to come. And so I want to continue to lay a hold of the ever-increasing expanse of abundant life that's available to me now that 
uh, really ushers me into eternity. Right. I, I think when when you asked the question initially, Bill, um, what is our part in fighting sin and what is God's part? And the verse that I thought of when you asked that was, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And our part is to be incessant, just in, brutal uh, 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 with sin in our life, just to cut it off, just fight it, run from it, etc., all right, so what is God's part in all this? Well, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And Paul says, I strive by all the energy which God, you know, inspires within me. And you've got uh, God is at work in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So my job is to fight sin, uh, not make peace with it, just cut my hand off if I have to. That's my part. God's part. He's the one that's moving me to do all that. I wouldn't, apart from Christ, I can do nothing, you know. I understand theologically what you're saying, but, you know, my <laughs> office used to be next to yours, and now it explains all the screaming I heard coming that's out of right. your office. And, and I'm blind and I don't have hands. But other than that... <laughs> all right, here's another question, gentlemen. How does someone introduce the Bible to someone who is not familiar with it? This person is a Christian, but if they want to start reading it, where's the best place to start and then proceed? Always with the Gospel of John. Really? I have seen more people come to the Lord Jesus Christ or more people grow because that gives a portrait of Jesus like we get nowhere else hmm. in the great I Am sayings. Don't start with Genesis. You know, don't start with the Old Testament. I mean, you, you can get around to that, but that becomes very confusing. There are a lot of books there, 39 to read through before you get to the New Testament. You want the full picture of Jesus who Colossians uh, says is the author of the whole thing. He's the creator of everything. So the goal is once you bump into Jesus to know who he is, then you can go anywhere in the Bible and begin to make more sense. But if you don't start with like John or something like that, it's very difficult for people. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll plug again the ESV study Bible, because at the bottom of every page, it has good notes on how to interpret the difficult verses. I mean, I remember a professor saying, uh, not to disagree with you, Tom, but maybe a little bit, he said, people always say, read the Gospel of John first, but he said, that book is so deep and complex, he thought you should read Luke first. (laughs) But my point is, whichever you do, get a good study Bible that has good notes at the bottom of the page to, to help when you read a difficult verse. Yeah, I agree with that. Those study Bibles can be so helpful. And I think right. along with that, uh, I, I think early on in my life, I had a parallel Bible that it, it, I think it was about 2,000 pounds is what it felt like because it had four different translations <laughs> in it, right? But yeah. right, but the parallel Bible was great because I appreciated the richness of the King James, even yeah. if I didn't fully understand it. But then the NIV was there and then the Living Bible is there and sort of the intersection of those different translations with some good study notes can be a helpful place to begin. Agreed. Yeah, I think I think it's also helpful along with introducing key books and areas of scripture. I think even just to help kind of give, just even paint in broad strokes the general arc of the story of scripture, and just talking about that it essentially it's, it's God's story of redemption and His rescue and His love for humanity that's centered around the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And you know, I think the kind of the four categories that you can kind of you know break down the whole story and that idea of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation, and that they can begin as they're reading, you know, different passages, they're able to kind of slot and see, kind of make sense of where this fits in the overarching story. And, and, and so I think that would also, you know, uh, 
you know, in terms of really be helpful. I think the I think it's a book by Gordon Fee, reading the Bible for all it's worth. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's also a really good re- also a really good resource. It's something to read alongside of uh, someone's reading of Scripture. You know, Tom, it's interesting. Every physician I've worked with, and you know, we had our own medical clinic for a while, also told me to start with the Gospel of Luke. <laughs> Luke's right. So there, there must be something there with physicians. Yeah, and I think, Justin, you just brought up a really good point, too. That to get a, a history book as well, there's one written by Robert Gundry. Like, it's a New Testament history that simply gives you a survey and kind of takes you back into the scene of each of the Gospels and each of the letters. Like, those sort of side tools, as long as they're accessible, uh, can be really helpful in understanding oh, yeah. Scripture. All right, we're going to take a very short break. We'll come back. We'll have plenty of more guy talk. I don't know all the players that will be here when we return. I know uh, 007 is going to check out. I think Pastor Tom Parrish will be here. Peter, are you going to be able to stick for a while? Uh, A couple of minutes, maybe. A couple of minutes, maybe. Uh, Tom Brock, you're around, aren't you? Yep, I'll be here. Good. So we got a couple of Toms for sure. So let me know what your questions are. Keep them coming, 877-933-2484. we got this really lovely giveaway this month, too, in May. Coming up in May, we've got a book by Andy Stanley called Fields of Gold, A Place Beyond Your Deepest Fears, a prize beyond your wildest imagine, imagination. We've got a, a generous number of copies we're going to give away. So you can go enter to win one at myfaithradio.com. But let me know what your questions are. We'll be back in just a minute. 877-933-2484. Thanks for listening. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.